Hi, this is Corey Turner, and along with my wife Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. So good to be joining you online wherever you're streaming in right now, however you're connecting with church. I hope that you've uh, had a good Sunday so far, or if you're watching this at a later date, uh, wherever you find yourself, I just hope that you've sensed the presence of God even in this service. It's very tangible here. Uh, with us in this room, but I'm just praying that even over the streams, over the airwaves, that the presence of God is very real with you right now. And and what a privilege it is to bring the Word of God to you tonight. I count it as such an honour to be able to stand in this pulpit. And I want to get straight into it uh, and take you to 1 Kings chapter 21. If you have your Bible Please go to 1 Kings 21. If you're not familiar with where 1 Kings is, it is after Genesis and right before 2 Kings. Just felt the teaching grace come upon me right there. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 21. I want to set up, give you some context for where we're going tonight. Here in 1 Kings, we are living in the time of Elijah the prophet and the king at this point is King Ahab, and King Ahab is uh, ruling over Israel, Samaria and Israel over in one of their darkest periods of their very checkered history, and uh, Ahab himself is probably one of the most wicked kings to have ever uh, ruled over the people of Israel, uh, mostly because of his marriage to Queen Jezebel. You might be familiar with Jezebel. Uh, Throughout the Bible, she is depicted as the personification of evil, even going into the New Testament, especially in the book of Revelation, she's uh, depicted there as the evil antichrist spirit coming against the church. And so these are the characters that we find in this story here today. Um, also, we're going to meet a guy named Naboth as well. Um, Ahab is one wicked guy, and you're going to see why in just a few Moments. In fact, in verse 25 of this same chapter, it says that uh, there was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, enticed. Jezebel, the Jenny or Jezzy from the block, this, uh, this evil queen here, she is Cruella de Vil. She is Karen from Bunnings. Um, that's a joke. It's topical humor. Don't at me on social media. 1 Kings 21 and verse 1, it says, Now Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I might have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And now Ahab, a fully grown man, is going to have a temper tantrum. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. I want to speak to you tonight 
from the title Trade in Vineyards for Vegetables. Trade in Vineyards for Vegetables. I don't know if you've ever found yourself in a bad trading situation. I'm sure there's plenty of uh, examples out there in society of trades gone bad, whether it's on the stock market, whether it's with the financial crisis that happened a number of years ago that we're still feeling the effects of today, or perhaps you uh, were in a family, a sibling relationship where you got t- taken advantage of at a young age with some bad trades, like you were given coins as pocket money, and your older sibling came to you one day and said, you know what, I'll give you my big coins, you know, the 50s and the 20s and the 10s, and I'll swap it for your little coins, your ones and your twos. And you were completely unaware of how bad a trade that was, but the big shiny coins just looked a lot better to you. If you were the victim of such a trade, we'll have prayer ministry for you after this service available. But, you know, I came across this story in 1 Kings 21 a while ago, and I got stuck on verse 2, where Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I might have it for a vegetable garden. Because of all the messed up, absurd and wicked things that Ahab would have done, this must have been one of the worst. Because who takes a vineyard and turns it into a vegetable patch? Notice Ahab offered to give Naboth a better vineyard or money, but Naboth refused and he had good reason to do that because God had commanded the Israelites to never sell or trade in their family inheritance, except in times of extreme destitution. And even in those cases, it would be redeemed back to them in the year of Jubilee. And I couldn't shake this thought, why would you trade a vineyard for a vegetable garden? So in the following days and weeks, I kept coming back to this passage and studying it and meditating upon it. And and God began to illuminate ways in which we ourselves could trade in our vineyard for vegetables. And you might be thinking, what is this guy talking about? I don't even own a vineyard and I barely eat vegetables. But let's think about the difference between a vegetable garden and a vineyard. And hopefully you'll catch my drift. A vineyard takes years to develop. You carefully tend the vines over several years and only when those vines are mature do they start to bring forth fruits. A good vineyard is hard work and difficult to replace, but it can last for generations. Vegetable garden, on the other hand, comes and goes. It has no abiding value. And just like Ahab came and offered Naboth a trade, I believe every day we are presented with choices where the enemy would love for us to trade in our vineyard for vegetables. In John chapter 10 and verse 10, Jesus gives us insight into the enemy's tactics and how his purpose for our lives. Pastor Joel, the other Pastor Joel, mentioned this in communion earlier when he, he talked about how the enemy would come and steal, kill and destroy. If you look at the original Greek language of that word kill, it's not just talking about a literal murder, but it's this idea that we would sacrifice something good for something less. See, if the enemy can't steal it from you, he might ask you to trade it in, try and trade it in for something of lesser value. 
And I sense even going into this next season in the month of August as we mark it on the calendar as our revival month, not that we would box revival into a single month, but it's a chance for us to turn our attention and cry out to God for a greater manifestation of His Spirit in our lives, in our world. I believe that every day we are faced with the choice of vineyards of revival or the vegetables of everyday life. The question is, what are you trading? And I would like to present to you tonight three areas in which we potentially trade in something of great value for something less in our lives. The first thing is that we can trade the knowing of God for the know-how of church. We trade the knowing of God for the know-how of church. Now, I grew up in church. I am a pastor's kid Guilty as charged, no running away from it. And so I am very comfortable in this environment, perhaps less comfortable here with a microphone. Usually my comfort zone is somewhere back there behind the keys. But in this environment, I know how to act. I know how to behave. I, I learned very quickly how to speak Christianese, you know, and when to speak and when not to speak, when to stand up, when to raise my hands, you know. The 17th time through the bridge when the presence really hits and, you know, all that kind of thing. I learned these behaviors, but the know-how of church can never replace the knowing of God. The knowing of God is only possible in a hungry pursuit of God. And that pursuit of God is only possible because He longs for us to know Him. Our Maker has designed for us to long for relationship with Him. But that relationship has so often been traded in for religion. You think back to the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve were in this idyllic state, this paradise that God had created for them to walk in the garden in the cool of the day with their creator. And they would walk and talk and they would get to know him and he would uh, unlock so many mysteries, I'm sure, as, as they walked and communed together in the cool of the day. But what did the enemy come and do? He tempted them with trading in the knowing of God for the knowledge of good and evil. The enemy's lie was, if you eat this fruit, you will be like God. But who were they actually like? They were created in the image of God. What he was really saying was, you aren't good enough on your own, but you have the power to grab it for yourself. You on your own without God can become good enough. You can become like him. And that's the lie of religion. It's just the same. If we can know by ourselves good and evil, if we can set the rules ourselves, if we can say what is right and what is wrong, and if we get to decide that ourselves, then we can get by without knowing God. You know, if anyone could have relied on his knowledge of good and evil and right from wrong and the letter of the law, it was the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 3, we read about his long resume and all his acumen that he'd, he'd learned over years and who he'd sat under and learned from and his heritage and everything that he brought with him. And then in Philippians 3 verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus, my Lord. In verse 10, he goes on to say that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. Religion is such a poor trade for relationship. You know, Beck and I have been married for over 13 years now. And so I can tell you that if we limited our relationship to just a 90-minute social interaction once a week, we wouldn't have the marriage that we would want to have. And yet, as absurd as that example is, there are so many Christians in the world today living their relationship with God and limiting it to just a 90-minute public social interaction surrounded by people once a week. For some of you, it's less than that. It's once a month. How can we possibly imagine that we would have an intimate knowing of our maker if we just limit it to just a public gathering setting? The question is, are you trading in the knowing of God for the know-how of church? Are you trading in the vineyard of revival for the vegetables of religion? Larry Sparks says this in his book, Ask for Rain. When you cease pressing in to experience more of God, the very thing we labeled as revival in a former season can become religion in the next. What was a flowing, vibrant revival river in one season can actually become a stagnant pond in the next season. How is this even possible? Simple. When we decide to cease discovering the fullness of God and we camp out in a comfortable place. And I believe this is the second trade that the enemy would love us to make. Where we trade hunger for comfort. We trade hunger for comfort. See, Naboth's vineyard was right next to the palace. And Ahab said to him, give me your vineyard that I might have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. For Ahab, acquiring this vineyard was all about personal convenience. Ahab offered him another vineyard somewhere else and Ahab could have well himself planted that vineyard or vegetable garden in another part of his land or whatever. But as he was traveling through, walking through his house each day, he would have seen this vineyard next door and thought, well, this is much more convenient if I have it right next to me. Not only was it about his personal convenience, it was about his personal consumption as well. Unlike a vineyard which can serve so many people and last for generations, this vegetable patch was just about what Ahab could consume himself. And I believe that this is a word for us as we head into revival month. Over the last 18 months or so, I have delved into revival history, looking at stories of moves of God across the centuries from around the world. And wherever a significant move of God has occurred, all of them have been a result of people unsatisfied with the status quo. Comfort prevents us from further exploration. It's the hunger for further exploration of God that keeps people postured to experience the increase of revival. You know, revival isn't some magic tap that God has in heaven that he'll sit up there with the angels and turn to Gabriel and say, let's see if this thing still works. You know, what do we reckon we give him a bit of a sprinkling now? 
Revival is always birthed in the heart of hungry believers. Yes, there is a sovereign element to revival, but more often than not, it's the byproduct of a man or a woman who becomes discontent with living in their spiritual comfort zone. The way things presently are can no longer satisfy the thirsty soul. Whether we're reading about the greater things in the Bible, the greater works of the Acts of the Apostles, and and you get this sort of tension in yourself saying, why is this not in my life? Or whether you're reading about revival history and the moves of God throughout the generations, and you think to yourself, why is this not happening in my day? Why am I not seeing it this with my own eyes? Something needs to to uh, burst out within us this holy tension to say, I'm not satisfied with staying in my comfort zone, but I'm hungry for more, increased revival, increased outpouring, and increased activity of the Holy Spirit. There is always more of God to discover, deeper places to go in God. The Christian walk is supposed to be about from glory to glory. Not from Sunday to Sunday, not service to service, not from one conference to the next, but glory to glory. I believe revivalists are formed in this tension of between glory to glory. We thank God for the glory that we're experiencing right now, but we're not satisfied with the current act pouring. We're asking God for more of His glory. Send more. He says to ask for rain in the time of latter rain. Yes, it's raining. Yes, we can hear the sound of an abundance of rain, but there is more of an outpouring to come as well. There is no revival without a divine discontentment. And I'm so encouraged that within Numa Church, there is this divine discontentment that is brewing and growing amongst us. And we're crying out, just like the revivalists in the past, Lord, there must be more. I'm not content with just reading about it. I want to taste it. I want to walk in it. I want to see more of your power demonstrated in and through me. On the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The question is, what are you hungry for? What you are hungry for is what you will eat. What you ate yesterday is what will come out of you today. (laughs) What you eat today is what will come out of you tomorrow. So if you're satisfying yourself on apathy, you will speak apathy tomorrow. If you're satisfied with the status quo, you'll speak the things the way they always were. But if you are hungry and thirsty for more of God, you'll begin to declare righteousness. You'll begin to declare more of God. You'll begin to declare revival in this generation. Are you trading in the vineyard of revival for the comfort food of your vegetable patch? You know, I grew up in uh, Wales in the UK Don't hold that against me. But um, growing up in Wales, I grew up on the stories of the Welsh Revival of 1904. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Welsh Revival, it really was birthed in the heart of a young man named Evan Roberts. And Evan Roberts was 12 years old when he left school to work in the coal mines of South Wales. At age 13, he got saved. And right from that young age, he had this real sensitivity to the things of God. And uh, he was struck one day when a preacher said in a, in a message, what if the Holy Spirit came in a service and you were not present? 
So that put a determination in Evan Roberts to never miss any possible meeting. Anytime the church doors were open, he was there. And he began at the age of 13 to begin crying out for revival once again in Wales. For 12 years, Evan Roberts cried out to God for revival. He would stay up all hours of the night reading about revival histories in days gone by. He would pray and intercede in the Spirit for more of God and preach revival in his bedroom to the point at one point he was thrown out of his lodgings because his landlady assumed that he was either deluded or dangerous or both. But that never quenched his hunger and thirst. And he began to cry out for more of God until one, one night he was woken up in the middle of the night and he said it was like this experience of the presence of God where he spoke to God face to face for hours on end. Night after night, this kept on happening and he began to feel the call of God to go and preach as well. So he went to his pastor and spoke to him about this. And his pastor didn't really know what to do with this young whippersnapper of a boy. And so he said, okay, well, you can have the, the side hall next to the main church building, the small little hall there, and, and you can do your thing. And so after the main service one night, Evan Roberts went to the side hall and began to preach. 16 people showed up that night. But Evan preached with such vigor and such anointing and such passion that by the end of that service, all 16 had either dedicated their life to Christ or rededicated their life to Christ. They were all baptized in the Holy Spirit. They came back the next night. More people rocked up for a third night. By a few nights later than that, they could no longer fit the crowd in the main church building as word began to spread of what God was doing in that town. As word began to spread further, little uh, prayer meetings began springing up all over South Wales as a move of God began to spread across that place. And, and God put on Evan Roberts' heart this, this desire to ask for 100,000 souls for Christ. And by the end of the Welsh revival, a year later, it was documented that 100,000 uh, decisions were made for Christ. But not only that, the whole landscape of Wales changed. The whole dynamic of the country changed, where crime rates depleted to virtually nothing. In fact, magistrates would turn up at the courthouse and were given ceremonial white gloves to indicate that there were no cases to try. A reporter went to the police station and said, well, what do you guys do now that there's no crime? And the sergeant said to them, well, we used to deal with crime or do crowd control. And now because of all the crowds are at the churches, that's where we go. And actually, some of the policemen have decent singers, and so they've joined the choir as well. As this move of God began to spread further and further, the nation was turned upside down. And yet growing up in Wales, the only signs of revival were old, empty church buildings, religious monuments to a move of God in the past. Because when we settle in our comfort zones, even in a season of revival, what was once a free-flowing stream becomes a stagnant pond and just memories of a move of God in the past. And I remember growing up wondering why revivals like that in Wales would, would seemingly peter out after a matter of time. And I believe, believe it's because even in a revival season, we can start to get in our comfort zones and think this must be the way that God moves. And we package it up and we say, well, it's about 
what we want. It was about this personality or that song or, or maybe this is the way he's always got to do things and, and we're never looking and hungering for the new in God, the more in God. This is our comfortable place now. And suddenly that free-flowing stream becomes a stagnant pond. Not only that, I believe such seasons of revival seemingly come to an end because of this third and final trade and the worship team can come back on stage and join me here. The third and final trade I believe the enemy would love us to make is that we trade influence for impact. We trade influence for impact. Now, there's nothing wrong with impact. But if you think of impact as just a singular moment in time, it can come and go. Impact has to lead to influence. I like to think of influence as generational impact. No, the trouble is that most of us live our Christian lives going from one moment of impact to the next. And in between each moment is this plateau of mediocrity. And I hear people talk about church and liken it to a pit stop in our Christian walk where we can come in and get fueled up before we go on with the rest of our week. The trouble with that analogy is that so many Christians are living their Christian life with their spiritual fuel gauge just going down and down and down between each moment of impact until eventually we're just running on spiritual fumes, waiting for the next jump start to kick us back into life. All the while ignoring the fact that our Creator didn't uh, create us in a way physically or spiritually to live on adrenaline surges, to live just from one kickstart to the next. And so we keep looking for these spiritual spikes of adrenaline to jumpstart us back into life. We keep looking for formulas, formulas and combinations of things to make that feeling last longer. Don't get me wrong, we need this. We need the corporate gathering of believers more than ever right now. It's in moments like these when I get around my brothers and sisters in Christ that my faith is built up. As we sing our songs of praise and worship and my eyes are are lifted higher into how good God is, how faithful He is. It's when I sit under preaching and teaching of people who've gone further ahead of me that my faith is built up, that my hunger begins to grow. When I see miracles breaking out, signs and wonders and salvations, it it instills within within me a hunger for more of God. We need this. But the trouble is when we see this as the only time and place where we encounter and experience the presence of God. Because it's not as if God's like hanging out backstage somewhere throughout the week waiting for us to show up and sing the right song or to say the right message or to hear the right prophetic word to jolt us back into life. But these collective moments are about us. Uh, The gift is about us understanding that His presence is always with us. It's always with us. We are to be carriers of the presence of God. Don't just settle for moments of impact. A vegetable garden is just transient. It comes and goes. It has no lasting value. But a well-maintained vineyard can influence generations. And yes, whilst in Wales, the, the revival river that was there in 1904 seemingly came to a stagnant end. As I began to study revival history, I could see ripples of the effect of that revival 
across the nations, even to here in Australia. So you had guys like Smith Wigglesworth, who was ministering here in Australia in the early 1900s, heard about the move of God that was happening in the UK, in particular with Evan Roberts in Wales. So he thought, I've got to go and experience this for myself. So he traveled over to the UK to see it for himself. Years later, he came back to minister in Australia and was here again doing revival meetings with C.L. Greenwood and, and the Sunshine Revivals that actually birthed this church as well because there was a generation of people who uh, would not trade in their vineyard for a vegetable garden. We're standing here now, a hundred years later almost, on rich, fertile soil of revival because a generation of people said, I'm not gonna trade in my vineyard, the inheritance of my fathers for a vegetable garden. And I'm just wondering today if there's a generation of people who would look the enemy in the face and say, God forbid that I should trade in the inheritance of my fathers. God forbid that I should trade in the knowing of God for the know-how of church. God forbid that I should trade in my hunger for a comfort zone. God forbid that I should trade in my influence for just a moment of impact. As I reflect on my life and the goodness and faithfulness of God in my life, that He would take a guy like me from the back of beyond in mid Wales. You know, in my town that I grew up in, population that was less than even the people that attend Numa Church. In that town in 1904, the revivalists were stopped from entering into that town because the authorities thought they were too radical. So they sent them elsewhere. And so I grew up in this town that always had this spiritual sort of darkness hanging over it. There was a street, uh, there was a church on every corner, but a spiritual darkness and spiritual apathy throughout. And to think that God would take this guy from a place like that, playing his keyboard to Sister Mavanwi and Sister Marilyn and nobody and no one. And I find myself in a church like this with such a rich heritage of revival, standing on a platform, I've never even been into a church like this, of this size, never would have even dreamed as I was there in Midwells growing up that I would find myself a part of a move of God like we're experiencing right now. But I believe the faithfulness of God in my life is that I was determined, despite seeing the good, the bad and the ugly of church life, never to trade in the inheritance of my fathers, never to trade in the hunger and the thirst for more of God. I remember at eight years old, crying out to God, God, I wanna be a, a part of a move of God on the earth. Don't trade in. Young person, listen to me, don't trade in what God has placed within you. Don't trade in your generational influence for anything less than God has for you. I wonder wherever you are right now, if this resonates with you, would you stand in your living room, in your bedroom? You know, we're living in a moment in time where we're part of a church that is here because of the impact and influence of revival almost a hundred years ago, because of the generational influence of people who would not make a bad trade. If Jesus doesn't return in the next hundred years, I wonder what future generations would say about us. 
I pray that we would be a generation that determines never to trade in their vineyard for vegetables. Don't be like Ahab, just concerned with his own little patch, his own convenience, his own hunger, his own short-term needs. It's not about what we can grow in our patch, but being connected to the source, our vine. Jesus arrived on earth and He said, I'm the true vine. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you'll ask whatever you will and it will be done unto you. What are you asking for tonight? Are you asking according to His will? Are you asking for a move of God in your life? Are you asking for more of God? Are you just asking for the status quo to stay the same? Would to God that we would have a generation of people who would say, I'm gonna hold on to what has been placed within me. I'm gonna hold on to the more of God. I'm gonna keep pressing in. I'm gonna pray even if I have to pray for 12 years for a revival, I'm gonna keep pressing in. I'm gonna keep declaring the goodness of God in the land of living. I'm gonna keep declaring that I will see revival. I will see miracles break out. I will see healings and deliverances. I will see salvations. I will see my family come back to Christ. I will see the more of God. If that's you, as we declare this song, I pray that within you a hunger would begin to arise. I'm not satisfied with the way things are. I'm not satisfied with what I've experienced so far. But God, I know that you have more for me. I know that there is more in you. So God, would you do it today? Would you do it today? Oh God, would you break out today in signs and wonders? Come on, fire for Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died and rose again, conquering sin, Satan and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, Amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.